Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is a great way to stay on top of the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day with a free email newsletter, a handy smartphone app, and of course, at our newly revamped website at SupChina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I am in the D.C. suburbs of Northern Virginia today for a conversation with Dave Rank who until quite recently was chargé d'affaires of the U.S. Embassy in Beijing. As many of you probably know, Dave resigned his position after President Trump announced that he would be withdrawing the U.S. from the Paris Climate Agreement, making the U.S. one of three countries in the world, along with Syria and Nicaragua, that will not be part of the Paris Agreement. And Nicaragua, as you've probably already heard, only refused to sign because the agreement didn't do enough. So Dave, thanks so much for inviting me to your home and agreeing to talk about your decision. Kaiser, it's great to be here, and uh, welcome back to my home. Uh, the last time we, we got together, I think <laughs> you were home. in my home, uh, my apartment uh, uh, in Beijing. When yeah, I, was... I see. I mean, how did you manage to get the stuff over so quickly? How does that work? Because I well, see some Chinese stuff here. Right. You you saw earlier when you were coming in, the, the renter who had, uh, we had left the place empty, or not empty, uh, left it full because we have a couple of kids or had a couple of kids in college at the time, so... We uh, rented the place out to the music director from our church and uh, with the understanding that the room became the whole house until the kids came back for the weekend, that sort of thing. Or I blew up my career and... Uh, oh, you had to blow up the career clause <laughs> in there. Right. <laughs> good thinking, good thinking. Uh, so you are an admirably nonpartisan guy. It's a rare thing these days, and I, I respect that. But I am a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat, and I have made no secret of my feelings about the man now in the Oval Office. So uh, I have to applaud you, but get that right out of the way. I want to start by trying to get a sense of your inner dialogue and perhaps the conversations that you had with your with your wife, Mary, your family members, and with your faith uh, that led you to this decision. Get inside your head and tell me what was going on. Yeah, I have to say, talking to you know, I've never seen myself as a climate guy per se, uh, and it seemed implausible from the from the outset that we would pull out. And I, I mean, not from a, a American partisan political perspective, but just from the perspective of what made sense from foreign policy, what made sense from the point of American leadership. So it didn't occur to me. I mean, the, the idea that we might uh, stay in but downgrade our ambition, the sorts of commitments that we, we intended to carry through in Paris, that seemed sort of a, the likely pretty unpalatable outcome, but the mm -hmm. kind of thing that diplomats are used to doing, you know, working with not great scenarios uh, and trying to salvage what we could out of it. You know, it only hit me really about a day beforehand. It struck me, wow, we could really pull out. You know, the reports coming out of Washington were that we might entirely uh, pull out. And, and I have to say at that point, I mean, it left a pit in my stomach. And as I, you probably saw in the... Uh, 
in the reporting of my departure, uh, you know, both from not not just from a foreign policy perspective, but really from a moral perspective, from the perspective of a father of three kids, just couldn't do it. When you heard the news, you had already made up your mind, presumably by then. How long did it take you between hearing the news and actually deciding that you were going to pull the trigger? Uh, well, it was the complication of my wife was back on the family farm, her uh-huh. family farm uh, in rural Illinois. And so we had to, I mean, that's kind of a decision. It was hard to take right on your uh, own you solo. So we did a, I, I sent some talking points to her as we are wont to do in my business and said, are you good with these? <laughs> Essentially uh, uh, laying down, uh, you know, not the, not the idea of resigning, but, but that I just couldn't have anything to do with the implementation of the agreement. Right. Which you couldn't I, actually I, deliver to the Marshall. Well, I mean, there's a little garble on the, on what specifically the request was, but, but it was, uh, I freely admit uh, a very minor request of me. Uh, you know, I w- was not asked to go to Paris to, you know, break into the vault holding the agreement <laughs> and tear it up. Uh, you know, uh, that it was a, a symbolic act that I was asked to do, and I just decided I couldn't do it. Uh, so for me, Trump's decision to pull out of Paris came piled atop other outrages, especially the ones during his, his at that point, very recent overseas trip, his first overseas trip especially in his meetings with, with NATO. I mean, his refusal to, to make mention of Article 5 and then the shoving of the Montenegrin prime minister for that photo op uh, uh, and, and, and a lot of other things that he did. Uh, and this, I mean, not to mention the myriad other things that he's done to damage the American reputation abroad in the border wall, the travel ban, and much more. I, I can't imagine how difficult it must have been for you as a career diplomat or others like you to, to just watch your work just just being sort of casually shattered the way Trump had done. Was this a cumulative thing for you? Or would the pullout from Paris, had it happened in a hypothetical isolation, would that have been enough uh, to prompt your resignation? You know, it's the, the alternative reality or, you know, the other paths the U.S. might have gone down. I don't know. Uh, I mean, it's clearly everything is cumulative in your in a person's experience. That's right. Uh, it, it certainly didn't make it easy. And I, I, I can't, you can't just pin it on this administration. I mean, I was really dismayed by the decision to pull out of TPP. Sure. But, I, but that's a, a cross-administration thing. I was dismayed with the lack of enthusiasm that the previous administration put into uh, passing uh, TPP. Essentially, the it seemed like the plan to pass it depended on a Hillary Clinton victory and running it through the, the lame duck Congress, which seemed to be, for something that important to our position in this part of the world, a pretty thin strategy to, to hang it on. So I won't say it was, you know, my my concern about the American commitment to U.S. leadership in the world is just a function of the Donald Trump administration. But you're right. I mean, there's some things, uh, not just in Asia, but but worldwide, that this administration has, has taken that I think uh, dismays a lot of people who who see the practical benefits to American leadership. Right. Again, the work that you guys had had, had done. I mean, it's it's just. It's like watching one of your children marched off to be shot. I mean, it was terrible. Anyway, so where were you actually when you heard that President Trump had made the decision to pull out when he made the Rose Garden speech? I want to say I was traveling when I somewhere in China, okay. and I and I got back and had sort of caught myself was catching up on the news overnight, and like I say, when it hit me that wow, 
I think we're, we're going to pull out, and and of course, by the time the what time was the Rose Garden speech? It was, was it two p.m. or three right, PM, so that yeah. would have been middle of the yeah, night, middle of the night, right, uh, right. in Beijing. So I was, uh, as my family will tell you, if it's after nine thirty, I was sound asleep. <laughs> uh, but uh, but by the time the actual decision had been made, I, I think it was pretty clear what was going to happen. If you read Axios or the other yeah. uh, uh, press channels, it was clear that he was going to pull out. Would you have, you said you wouldn't describe yourself as some sort of committed and active environmentalist. You know, you weren't a climate guy. You weren't somebody who had really boned up on all the climate science. Um, but clearly, you had pretty strong feelings about this. How did global warming rank among, well, rank among the, uh, the, the different issues uh, that were of concern for you? And how important do you think it was for American moral leadership in the world? Right. America, I mean, American leadership. I, 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 I hate to characterize countries as having a moral uh, uh, role, although certainly we have, I think that has been one of the advantages, uh, or one of the, the, uh, the messages and one of the strengths of the United States is the ability, not just on, on things like climate, but also human rights, where we have taken clear moral stands. Uh, before heading out to Beijing, before taking the job as the, the number two, and then ultimately at the change of administration, I was uh, temporarily head of the U.S. mission in China. One of the reasons I decided to take the job is understanding that I'm not an expert or not a, a climate person, you know, haven't done the science, but I'm, I'm a believer in expertise. I'm a believer in the idea that has really led to the American miracle of the last century, which is we we put great stock in expertise, we put great stock in science, uh, and you know, it led to the transformation of the American economic system. And so it's hard to set that aside when uh, for something like climate. In fact, you know, when when essentially anyone who has looked at the issue without being funded by folks who have an, a, 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 a vested stake, a vested in, stake in, in the outcome yeah. has said, look, this is a, a compelling threat to uh, our way of life. And how do you then look past that as, as you're doing things? So one of the things that motivated me going out was, look, I know I'm not a climate person. I know I don't know the science, but generalists, which is what the Foreign Service is largely made of, have the ability uh, to not work the technical details, but at the big picture, uh, how I, as the number two or, or the, the number one in the in the American embassy, you know, I had the ability uh, to nudge things along by what my priorities were, where I put my attention. Uh, I knew that, I, or at least I hoped I'd be be able to advance the process of American leadership uh, on climate issues. Uh, certainly, that was the case under the Obama administration, mm -hmm. uh, and I faced the prospect of being the other side of things you know not that my my role would be decisive in our the path towards withdrawing from Paris but I knew that I would be called on uh, to make those take those incremental steps to disengage ourselves from that part of leadership and it just right. I couldn't couldn't see yourself doing that right uh, what's the actual process by which one resigns from a, a position as chargé d'affaires of one of the most important american embassies in the world we we don't have a year to year contract <laughs> i mean we we uh, it is we're a disciplined service so essentially uh you you either follow through the instructions you're given I mean, there are other ways of avoiding it, but once you get to that level, that you have to make a decision. Can you implement the, the president's instructions? Can you implement the administration's policies? Or you have to resign the position. And so, I mean, there isn't... No two I, weeks I, notice. I, that's right. No, no, I, I mean, I think at that point, I, I left fairly quickly after the decision was made. I think that was better for all concerned. You know, that uh, once you've left the 
a position of that seniority of that leadership i mean it, it's just not tenable to be there long term so uh it was friday evening early saturday morning that uh the issue came to a head and i was out by by tuesday of the next week and i think frankly the only reason i was there uh, that long is because i uh, I, I doing some physical therapy for some uh, leg problems I had while I was in China, and I needed to finish up the, the not the program, but just to to have one last meeting with my uh, physical therapist so I could figure. You had one last meeting with staff too, though. You had the town hall, and what day was that then? That was that would have been um, on the Monday, right? On the Monday, right? So, what, why a town hall format, and and uh, what did you say there? Uh, I mean, town hall format one, I mean, it's sort of a personal thing Very, uh, yeah. that, that, you know, I've known these people in some cases for 20 something years, both the Americans and the Chinese staff, you know, they're, they're Chinese staff who have been there uh, two and three decades since the establishment or some, in some cases before the establishment of diplomatic relations. And you know, my career in China uh, dates back to 1990 was my first assignment. So, uh, and, uh, you know, some of the people I have known since then, again, both the Americans and Chinese. So the idea of leaving without, uh, without saying farewell uh, was not very palatable. Uh, also at that point, uh, your friend John Pomfret had picked up the story. Uh, the Chinese media had picked up the story. So I think disappearing would have been bad, both from the perspective right. of embassy morale, you know, the, if, the leader. And I like to kid myself that people liked me well enough there, uh, but also from the perspective of at the administration trying to, to, uh, to manage, manage this, manage right. Right. to have the, the head of a mission disappear, uh, sort of in, under the cloak of darkness could only have been bad for them. It would have encouraged people to think the worst. And, and one of the messages I gave to my staff was they're going to be, there are rumors, speculation out there. I asked them to not feed those reports. And I think to a large extent that was, in fact, given the size of more than 2,000 people in the China mission, uh, I think it was remarkably disciplined. People were very uh, circumspect. They were not feeding media speculation. I think if I had just left without talking to the staff, that wouldn't have been the case. Right, right, right. And what what then was the reaction of, of the staff? I mean, if you had to characterize it, uh, they were generally supportive, disheartened. Uh, People have been, I'm sure there are people out there who think I'm an idiot, who think I made a, the wrong choice. Uh -huh. uh, they have been admirably uh, quiet. Uh, <laughs> qu quiet. The people who've been in touch with me both uh, that day and then subsequently have been very supportive and, you know, uh, uh, said they expressed support for, for the, the decision both. Uh, and I tried to be clear when I talked to the embassy, look, it's a very personal decision on, on a lot of levels. One, you know, my personal moral views about uh, and and other views about the decision, but also the personal situation I was in that allowed me to, to step away without, you know, look, my kids are out of college. I've, uh, you know, my personal situation is a little different, which allowed me very forthrightly to make a decision uh, that someone early in their career uh, might not. And someone earlier in his or her career also has the ability to spend 20 or more years uh, working to, I think, address will be some of the fallout from, from mm -hmm. the decision. Did you hear from Tillerson, from Rex Tillerson, or from anyone else who is sort of more senior than you at, at State? And uh, I mean, I haven't seen much comment from the State Department itself or from, from the, the White House on this. I won't get into the sort of personal or the private conversations I had. I will say that there was very nice comment from on the record public where they they recognized that I was leaving and, and thanked me for a, right. a, a long 
That was all so, pretty boilerplate, right? Yeah, but they didn't have to say it. They right, could have. Right. They could have merely acknowledged my departure. I mean, I, I think it was. Uh, I I had great respect for the fact that they thanked me for a, a long career. Okay. What about from Max Baucus, the ambassador under whom you served? Did Did you have any personal communication with him? I was. I've been in touch with both Max and his wife. Uh, I, we were. I, I count myself as exceedingly fortunate to have worked with him. Uh, we had a great relationship when he was ambassador, and they both reached out uh, to express concern and uh, uh, and uh, I would say congratulations on, on <laughs> so that courage and my convictions. So. Yeah. What about from your diplomatic counterparts in China? Uh, that's what I'm really curious about. I mean, if you could share this in any any way, has anyone from the Chinese Foreign Ministry talked to you about this at a personal level? I'm trying to think if I've ever had a personal conversation with someone from the Chinese foreign ministry. <laughs> okay, what about any for, for more formally? Subject? Yeah, I talked. I talked with my counterpart to let him know that that I'd be leaving and to thank him for for. I mean, we. I joke. I talked to him late at night on a Friday or Saturday evening more than I talked to my wife uh, uh, at that time. So uh, uh, you know they're we uh we don't always agree the us government and the chinese government but uh, we do have a pretty uh, highly functional working relations so one of the calls i wanted to make sure i got done was to talk to my counterpart so there's a tradition of american presidents um leaving personal nits for their successors uh, terry branstad has not yet taken up the post that's why you were charge de fer he's going to be coming in 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 the next what month or so right that's yeah i understand yeah uh, you know I, I i think a lot of people reported very positively on once the note that george w bush left for barack obama uh came out i mean it was very gentlemanly and very positive and, and very encouraging kind of a, a vestige of of a bygone american gentility <laughs> but uh would you have left such a note for branstad would you uh have uh or would you would you now leave sort of a, a, a an oral note for him what, what what advice would you give to him on handling this situation and, and the myriad others that he's going to face once taking up the ambassadorship wow uh the advice I had for my staff, and it's a different direction, but it, it working in China, working in any high-level job, I think it requires the ability to take a deep breath and to realize, you know, which of the decisions in the course of a day or a week or a month will you remember in 10 years? I mean, there are probably a couple of decisions that affect the fate of the Republic. There are a couple that you might remember uh, come the end of the year, and there are an awful lot that you just have to let wash over you. And a place as big and complicated as China, uh, the ability where everyone thinks their decision falls into that first camp. In fact, probably most of them fall uh, at best into the second and, and mostly, to, into, that third. mostly <laughs> into that third one. Uh, the other bit of advice I'd, get, I'd give, which I I had a uh, uh, colleague I respect and who has spent a lot of, a lot of time working in China uh, gave me uh, early on in my career is just embrace the ignorance you have to uh, that you will feel at everything you know you wake up every day and if uh, it will be a rare day where you don't learn something that every Chinese understands as totally received wisdom but <laughs> but just a uh, revelation uh, to you and I think it's just something that's it's a cool thing about working in China uh, uh, but you have to get past the idea that you can know everything because it's just too big too complicated 
Absolutely. Uh, yeah, no, that's, that's valuable advice to anyone embarking on a China-related career. And I'm going to give him one last bit of advice. All right. Is there's a big team there in China, and uh, they are dedicated to making Terry Branstad and making the United States succeed, whether it's under Donald Trump or Barack Obama uh, or really anyone who sits in the Oval Office or who sits in the ambassador's office in China, that there is a team there uh, who really they know their stuff uh, and they are dedicated uh, not only to their jobs, but to their country. I have to ask, were there any uh, murmurings about other people sort of resigning in solidarity with you on your staff? I, you know, it was really, it was gracious. They all allowed me to have the honor of doing it so much. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, you know, when I talked to the staff, one of my, one of the points I made was uh, that there are some people, I mean, it made sense in my case. Uh, and, you know, I, I, believed from a moral perspective that I needed to step down, but I just as firmly believe that it, it's honorable to stay on. It's honorable to continue to do the tough work day to day that we're going to need to do, not just because of withdrawal from Paris, but because of that's what the work of diplomacy is. It's, you know, the uh, career public servants really don't get the breakthroughs. You know, those those go to and rightly go to the political level of of the uh, of an administration who, you know, that that will be the measure of their success or failure as an administration. But the hard work of sort of the day to day nuts and bolts of diplomacy, it's really tough uh, and it requires people who know their stuff, who are dedicated to it, uh, to the the task, to the United States uh, and to the commitment to nonpartisan service. I, uh, before I, we turn our attention to sort of the, the China uh, side of it, I want uh, as a, maybe a, a way a bridge to that topic. In November 2014, when we signed the first climate agreement with China, uh, you were in Afghanistan, or you were doing Afghanistan-related stuff. That's right. right. Yeah. And you speak Dari, actually, right? I speak really bad Dari. Oh, really at this bad point, Dari. Yeah. But that's yeah. not there in the press. The top thing, much yes. But anyway, in the time since you assumed the position of deputy chief of mission there, you must have worked on climate issues uh, with your Chinese counterparts, yeah, on implementation and things like that. Uh, there's one guy. I mean, Xi Jinhua was is is probably the, the Chinese diplomat who uh, is credited with driving the process the most from the Chinese side. Can you, do you know him personally? Had you met him? And I've, I've met him a few times. You know, he was by the, by the time those agreements were reached, uh, he was, I think, phasing himself out or anyway, uh, in one way or another being phased out of the leadership on that. Uh, and so I had not seen him probably since uh, the fall of last year. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of people have looked at your withdrawal and then thought about, I mean, and even, even in the, even before that, when as Trump was deliberating this, uh, people sort of understood, uh, that it was going to be something of a gift to China to see, uh, the U.S. seed leadership on the climate issue to them. And they've probably, you know, quite happily, and if, if not entirely sincerely, you sort of stepped, very much into that space. Um, do you think that the withdrawal, uh, first of all, did it do lasting damage to the U.S.-China trust on, on issues related to climate or on other things? Or does Beijing sort of understand that this is a Trump administration thing, not a U.S. thing, and that maybe it's offset by, and rather perversely, by the help that it gives to China in terms of optics? Right. I I mean, I'm not inclined to cut us slack for it being, I mean, you can't, uh, 
I think it's not fair in a democracy to say that's a Trump administration decision. I mean, it's a United States decision. Uh, and I think the Chinese properly look at it as that. Uh, I think it leads them to, it would lead any country to, to take with a grain of salt anything the United States says, particularly something that was negotiated, uh, it didn't have a congressional buy-in that, that was a executive order. Uh, executive right. order. That's right. So, uh, but that, being said, I, I, I think they're happy to capitalize on the advantage it, it gives them to, to say they are leaders on climate without really having to raise the ante of what they'd already done right. uh, under the Paris Agreement. So, I mean, so let's talk about that advantage. I mean, uh, the optics are probably good. It's Is it mostly that, so the sort of soft power boost, the... Um, the you know global popularity contest, the, the sort of the additional votes that it garners, China, or are there really specific economic benefits? Yeah, I mean, I, I would, to China? I, again, I'm not a businessman, but I would think that uh, my my hunch is that in 50 years we're going to be talking a lot more about renewable sources of energy as the dominant force in uh, in the global uh, commercial and economic structures, and and if we're not uh, if we're not one of the major investors, if we're not one of the major players in that space, sure, I would think that that uh, leaving Paris will have concrete, long-term commercial and economic impacts, and not good ones, on the United States. To what extent do you think that we can make up for that through states and and private enterprise initiatives, like we've seen, like uh, uh, we crossed paths with Governor Jerry Brown, probably uh, as you were on your way out, he was on his way into China, uh, in a very very well timed visit. Uh, and there are a number of state governors, um, oddly all Democrat state governors, who have also sort of signed on with him to, to state level diplomacy around around climate. Do you think that that can sort of help to recover ground? I think. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to be optimistic. I yeah. tell people I'm from Chicago. I'm a Cubs fan. I, I am an optimist, <laughs> an optimist by, by birth. Uh, by birth. Well, so, now you can claim you can, you could be a little more. You know, have that's some, right. some that, beef that there's. Uh, that I used to use that line when I was working Afghan issues, but the Cubs hadn't won the world won well, the World Series at that point. So, years. <laughs> so uh, uh, yeah, of course. I mean, there are. Uh, uh, Paris was not a panacea. The, the fact that we reached the agreement in Paris did not mean the climate issue was, was fixed. Right? <laughs> and the act of leaving Paris does not mean that uh, that you know, all is doomed. You know, it's still going to require a lot of work and there are still other ways of doing it. But it was just a an incremental and not a small incremental uh, uh, way of nudging things forward and of, and of reasserting and reaffirming U.S. leadership. So U.S. leadership is, I mean, there, there are a, a number of ways in which it seems to be ceding ground globally to China. First of all, while we are entering this phase of uh, a repudiation of globalism, uh, a sort of drawdown of our global commitments not to enter a TPP, China is aggressively rolling out large sort of integrated diplomatic and economic initiatives, like, of course, the Belt and Road Initiative, which is, you know, she's a signature thing. But also, you know, in, in years pre previous to this, now separate from Belt and Road, but the AIIP. Uh, and then we, we can't necessarily say this is all, we can't put this entirely on Trump either. It was the Obama administration that, that was urging our allies not to join AIIB as founding partners, but uh, that's gone gone ahead. Um, I think there are a lot of people in the world right now who see uh, America in retreat uh, from its global commitments. Trump at NATO not invoking Article 5, chiding them for not 
paying their, their you know, for not increasing their spending to 2% of GDP. Is there a global leadership vacuum and is China in any way suited to fill it? Uh, I, I think China doesn't aspire to global leadership yet. And no. to the extent they do, it's a different vision of global leadership than at least I have. And, and I think 70 years of bipartisan consensus had. Uh, you know, the fact that there was consensus doesn't mean it's, uh, doesn't mean it is necessarily, uh, the, the, the right, uh, the right course. But if you look at where we were 70 years ago, if you look at where the world was 70 years ago, politically, militarily, economically, I mean, I think an, an objective look at the uh, the benefits that U.S. leadership has brought, uh, it's, it's a pretty positive outcome, not just for for the for citizens of the world, but for citizens of the United States. Uh, you know, there are discontents with American leadership and with globalization and with the impacts of, uh, particularly, uh, uh, the impact of uh, commercial, you know, the global commercial order. To some extent, I wonder if that's more an issue of governance in the United States rather than of the the absolute impact of globalization on the United States. I mean, the United States, from a uh, uh, at a national level, is unquestionably more prosperous today than it was 20 years ago. It's also unquestionable that the benefits of that prosperity have not uh, accrued to everyone. Uh, and so, to me, that says it's it's an issue of how you, uh, uh, you know, how you govern the impacts of of globalization, both the positive and the negative, within the borders of the United States. Uh, but that, like, uh, you know, that's getting a little beyond the the scope of my maybe uh, you know, d- doubly so for China. I mean, China is really sort of where the rubber has hit the road on globalization all along, right? Uh, it's the country that arguably has benefited most from it and has suffered its ravages pretty badly as well. I mean, Right. I mean, that's, I have to say, one of the disappointments on TPP was it, it, uh, that if you look at the environmental standards built into TPP, it essentially that and the, and the Chinese vision of a low standard, uh, uh, global economic or commercial. Yeah. RCEP uh, or what? RCEP, yeah. right. Uh, I mean, the, the TPP essentially took the American environmental, uh, American environmental standards and made them an asset to the United States. In other words, having higher environmental standards built into a global trade, trade accord, uh, meant that not only would the environment imp- improve, Globally, or at least regionally, but the, uh, you know the the costs of environmental regulation that have been decried over the last several months, and really for the last decade, uh, decades, uh, become advantages for American companies that are used to operating in that environment. That's right. I mean, we can hope, I suppose, that. China, just by having made so many verbal commitments now uh, and, and understood that, that it does need to put something behind its commitments to climate change and to, to slowing at least the ravages of ecological disaster, that, that it will also build these things into now some of the public goods that it's creating in the world. I mean, I'm, I'm hearing that AIIB has better environmental standards now that, that so many developed Western countries are part of it now. That China is really only primus inter Paris among a lot of other countries that are involved in it. RCEP, I think Japan is also very much involved. Maybe they will sort of take a page from, from America's more stringent environmental demands that, that were baked into TPP. I mean, I think there's, is there a reason to, to think that that might, might happen? Sure. I mean, I've always been, uh, uh, I mean, the, uh, yeah, I, I, I think there's, a, there's an, right, there's an awful lot of, of reasons that China would have to 
uh, upgrade both domestically but also uh, internationally its uh, environmental performance. I think the big one is is just the domestic pressure uh, because of the realization within China of the the, the negative impacts of a GDP a sort of. Uh, uh, only looking at GDP as the measure right. of, of GDP uber alles. That's yeah. right. Growth. Yeah, when you look at what China had committed to in Paris, I mean, by 2030, I mean, reducing by, I think, two-thirds the energy intensity of every unit of GDP. I mean, that, that was a pretty bold commitment. And I, I just really, really hope that the U.S. withdrawal is going to encourage China to sort of step up rather than to to say, well, now that I no longer have the U.S. sort of watching me and riding me, I'm going to slip in my own commitments. But yeah, and I, I also, I mean, my take on on our involvement in Paris is, look, a lot of times, I mean, it's not just uh, on environmental issues, but the the existence of outside pressure. I mean, the Japanese were used to this. They they used that outside pressure, and and the uh, the Chinese have done that to go to their internal stakeholders and say, look, this isn't us, the Chinese system. These are our international commitments under Paris. We have to take these steps against uh, industries that are in overcapacity, against steel and aluminum and and uh, cement and glass, the, the, the really energy-intensive, really dirty industries that China knows they have to take on. And I think they were looking to Paris, and they probably will look to Paris, but a Paris without the United States is a weaker agreement. I don't think anyone... Uh, anyone would contest that. Uh, that w- that'll just be a. It will be a weaker tool for those advocates, uh, both of reducing overcapacity, but also of of taking on climate. Yeah, I think that there's this mistaken belief, people who don't really know China, uh, that it's just a matter of, of the government fiat. If the party decides this, then that will happen. But China is too just bedeviled with all sorts of stakeholders who are at cross purposes with their environmental goals. So, you know, they've, they've got their, their major SOEs and they may be state owned, but they certainly don't always obey what, what comes from on high, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. You've, you've talked a little bit about advice that you would leave to, to, your State Department folks, the people who you left behind in Beijing. I mean, your service dates back, if I'm not mistaken, to 1990. Is that 1990. Right? That's right. That's right. So uh, you know, you you have a real long perspective on uh, on the evolution of U.S. diplomacy. 1990 was before the first Gulf War. Uh, it was you know in a, a, a different moment. It was still sort of in the rosy glow of the Velvet Revolutions of '89. And at a time where I mean, it really looked like the end of history and the last man, the triumph of, of uh, American style democratic capitalism worldwide. How, how is your view of, of the role of American Foreign Service changed across that period? And uh, what sorts of advice would you give now to a young Foreign Service officer or would be Foreign Service officer like my intern Andy here sitting, uh, is, you know, first, first year in an East Asia program at Georgetown right now? Right. Uh, maybe, uh, Kaiser, I'll say this. When I started in 1990, I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't have email. I didn't have CNN to turn on. Maybe I had CNN, but it really, CNN, was, right, but, right. but it was, but it was really a nascent. I mean, the the three things that drive not just the foreign service, but drive government in general now, which is the immediacy of of news. It's something that happens uh, in a foreign country or in a rem- remote location. It doesn't have the chance to percolate up. You don't have the the opportunity 
to uh, reflect uh, at a first a local level and then maybe at the State Department level before it goes up to the White House uh, for a response. I mean, really the immediacy of something happens and uh, I mean, just my resignation is probably a, a, a perfect example that, you know, that was on on uh, you know, headline news within hours of it happening. In fact, probably right. hours before it happened, it was starting to get out. Uh, and it just changes not i mean not only the the sort of shift the relative shift in american dominance that you know the the before the first gulf war uh, where we were on the verge of being the sort of unipolar world mm-hmm. and we're really not there anymore but also just the shift uh of the balance of of power from issues that were uh, from issues that were uh, distinctly sort of westphalian relations between states uh, to now states are are an important player there are all these non-state yeah, actors yeah i was at a at a conference before i left government it was a track to in other words it was informal somehow they you know it was non official but it was i had managed to get a pass and snuck myself in and all of the issues they talked about were either subnational or supranational they were issues of of uh, uh terrorism and how do you deal with uh, citizens uh, of your own country who are uh, you know involved in terrorist activity or uh, things like cyber cyber threats uh, uh threats uh, infectious diseases in other words things that had uh, a connection to nation states but nation states were only one actor uh, among many many uh, other competing forces i mean right. really it's just a changed world absolutely and so for the young officer, the young would-be foreign service officer, I mean, I guess the, another question, and you are very much the embodiment of it, how do you separate your personal politics, your own personal convictions, whether they are are ideological or from faith or, or what have you, from the service that you, you're obliged to render to your president? Right. I mean, some of it is you have to know who you are. You have to understand what the what the sort of fundamental motivations and that that's allowed to evolve over, over a lifetime, I think. Uh, and part of it is what, understand what a public servant is uh, and uh, what role you play. You are not an elected official, but at the same time, uh, I mean, I, I talked about expertise earlier uh, in our conversation. And I think expertise is important. I worry that it's being devalued to some extent uh, in not just in the United States, but but globally. Yeah, it's a sort of global anti-intellectual wave. And right. Get, you know, revolution against the technocrats and whatnot. Yeah. But I think there's value to understanding a place. There's value to understanding an issue. Uh, and, and that's what a, a, a public service, that's what civil servants bring uh, to to modern government. And I think it's important to understand, the, again, the long-term perspective of everyone makes compromises uh, in, in their, their lives, in their careers. Uh, there is a contribution to someone who knows he's going to be in place or she's going to be in place for 25 or 30 years right. uh, that uh, my commitment is I, I can both live my values and serve a an administration or a president or a policy that I don't agree with uh, because uh, there is the public face of that policy, but there's also the public, the internal debate uh, that will shape how the policy is implemented, uh, and and uh, you know, sort of there, 
few policies that I've seen uh, are decided once and then uh, never looked back on again. I mean, there's the ability to review. And I think both in the negative sense of, ah, you know, are, do, do we ever end these battles? But also the positive sense of there are few policies that are have ever been perfect the first time they've been rolled out. And that requires uh, people who understand uh, the pros and cons and who understand the background uh, of, of the particular policy that's being implemented. So what's next for you, Dave? What are you going to do now? I mean, are you you're in retirement? I mean, are you going to take up golf? Or I mean, certainly not, right? I mean, I, I just let the record state that Dave Rank is a, is is this very uh, man of erect carriage and youthful demeanor. <laughs> I mean, you, you look like you know you look like you're in your your thirties. Right. Um, uh, yeah, uh, I was a child bride, so like I said, okay. I've got my kids out of college. I uh, or, or I've got, I'm a year away from having my kids out of college. I am in a very happy spot in my life uh-huh. where uh, I both I look back 27 years of a job I I genuinely loved. I loved not every day of it uh, over those 27 years, but uh, but it was really a a delight to go to work in the morning, whether it was in Washington or Beijing or Kabul. Uh, and, uh, and I come out of that both with, I think, sort of an understanding of the world, but also sort of a babe in the woods. It is the only thing I've ever done in my life. I, I, you know, graduated from, I came out of grad school. Uh, I finished actually in Taiwan, a graduate program. And, uh, in May, late May of 1989, if they, if those, uh, uh, you know, early June, uh, when I intended to come out and go into business uh, with my freshly learned Chinese, uh, and and you know find some business that was hiring and not a good time, mainland, right? but it wasn't a great time, and so I, I ended up uh, joining the Foreign Service, uh, and and for the first time in 27 years, I mean, the State Department I talked about being a disciplined service, not only disciplined, and you you have to uh, uh, you have to listen, you have to implement the policy of the current administration, but also it's just, uh, uh, you, you don't run your life to a large extent. Right. Uh, so I am hopefully, uh, what is it? Late June of, uh, or mid June of 2017, uh, as, as I went through the retirement process at the State Department, one of the things they do is they go through your, uh, they have, have a look at your annual leave balance. And I had the equivalent of having never taken leave for three years uh, built up. I, so I have a little pent-up vacation. Oh, nice. uh, I have uh, relatives, brothers and sisters who I haven't seen. My sister I haven't seen in her place since she moved there almost two decades ago. So I, I have a commitment to, uh, to get out to Utah to visit my sister. Uh, and uh, and what has been gratifying is a lot of people reaching out, not just to say, "Hey, Dave, uh, we support what you did," but you know that that the things you you know uh, have some value. And so it's kind of nice to, as I'm driving across the country with my bride, uh, to think about you know what's next. Uh, and I haven't decided yet, but it's kind of exciting time uh, to not know what I'm doing. You're not done with public service, though. You may be done with the foreign service, but not with public service, certainly. Yeah, I don't know what that means. I, I, it's hard to imagine having done, having worked 27 years uh, in one particular area to, to, to walk away entirely. But I don't know what that would look like. Huh. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. So enjoy your pent up vacation, uh, and then you drive cross country to Utah. Utah is lovely. So. Uh, uh, we were just talking about Utah on the drive up here about uh, Arches and Bryce and Zion to get out there. 
Yeah, my uh, my wife was able to uh, pass through there. Was it last summer? I was working last summer. She she was uh, driving my daughter out to Los Angeles, and uh, and she said, "Oh, Dave, we got to you know when, when you have a little more time, we got to pass through both of those Arches and Bryce." So so that's those are the stations, uh, a couple of the stations of the cross this summer. Anyway, uh, I mean, whatever you do, I'm sure you'll, you'll be a, a, a tremendous success in it. I think the world needs more men like you. Um, what an honor and a pleasure to, to talk to you. And, and thanks for making the time and for inviting us, us into your home. Um, let's, let's stick around and let's make a recommendation for our listeners. Yeah. So before we get to recommendations, I want to remind our listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by Sup China. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at SupChina.com. You can follow Sup China on Twitter at, at SupChinaNews and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash SupChinaNews. If you like the Seneca podcast, by all means, go leave us a positive review on the Apple iTunes store or on Google Play or wherever it is that you go to review apps. Uh, this really helps and it means a lot to us. And make sure to check out our new Caixin Seneca Business Brief, our weekly uh, podcast that we do in, in, in cooperation with China's leading business and finance magazine, Caixin. Uh, now, on to recommendations. Dave, what do you have for us? So, uh, Kaiser, people who know me well know that I get most of my reading uh, from the thrift store that I, I, uh, <laughs> I, I am uh, either I check them out online uh, or uh, from my local library or I buy them at the thrift store. And the last time I was there, I picked up a copy of Thoreau's The Maine Woods, ah, yeah. which uh, I, I'm about a halfway through it. And uh, my impression is, first of all, it is stunning to think that 200 years ago uh when when or 100 and what 70 years ago when when thoreau was writing it how uh how much we have transformed this country that just the presence of of uh uh the sort of protestant work ethic and the industrial uh economy have transformed uh uh this this country uh, but it also makes you think that Henry David Thoreau would have been a dreary traveling companion. I mean, he seems he's a <laughs> uh, the dilettante's dilettante. He knows nothing about uh, it's uh, about woodsmanship, but he he throws himself into the middle of things, uh, up trying and failing to get up at least uh, halfway through the book up uh, Mount Katahdin, uh, but but. Uh, uh, throws himself into the adventure and he is a man who is not afraid of long sentences uh, of classical references of obscure and uh, uh, a sort of circuitously worded uh, sentences and paragraphs it's it, it, it's uh, is this a recommendation or is this warning me off of it? <laughs> no, it, it's a recommendation I, I I'm tempted after I finish reading him to read Hemingway or Peter Hessler with their choppy choppy declarative sentences right right Hessler is the, the I mean he, he somehow does that without being annoying it's amazing right guys just just phenomenally gifted. I've got a book too uh, to recommend. Mine, I just started. It's it's actually not going to be out until this fall, 
but um, pre-order it if you can because it's fantastic. Uh, it's called Little Soldiers. Uh, Little Soldiers, an American boy, a Chinese school, and the global race to achieve by Lenora Chu or Lenora Zhu is it would be pronounced. Uh, Lenora uh, is a friend of mine who lives in Shanghai. She's actually married to Rob Schmitz, who was the who is the NPR um, the marketplace correspondent in Shanghai, and also the author of an excellent book that we, we've talked about with him on this podcast before an old friend of the show uh lenora is just a f- okay let me just say this she's a better writer than her husband she's just a really really crazily gifted writer uh i have been we've been sort of hooting in delight as i've been tr- sort of translating on the fly uh this book to my wife in chinese because it, the, the there are these uh wonderfully retold little anecdotes about her young son in in this really hyper competitive Chinese kindergarten, uh, where you know the, the the teachers are just tyrannical, uh, and of course you know she's like me. She she came up with sort of a, a more more tiger parenting certainly than I did, uh, but even th- this this makes that all all pale in comparison. It's great. We plan to have her on the show, hopefully in tandem with somebody like Amy Chua, uh, you know, who wrote Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother. Uh, who is actually on our company's advisory board. So hopefully that's going to work out. Uh, but Lenora's book is just terrific so far. I'm really, really enjoying it. Anyway, uh, Dave Rank, thanks once again. And l- let me say the one last time that I, I'm, I'm really proud to know you. I mean, I, I was, uh, my heart really swelled. Uh, and best of luck, and you won't need it, but best of luck anyway in all of your future endeavors. Thank you, Kaiser. Great to, great to be on the show. I have always been a fan. I understand you have a daughter who's a fan. I have a daughter who's a fan. If, <laughs> if you will give her a shout out, you will make her weak. Okay, it's Maggie, right? That's right. Hey, Maggie. Hey, thanks for listening, and uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, and also, God, your dad's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks. Uh, the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Thanks also to Anla Chang and Sarai Darabi from SubChina. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast. And follow us on Twitter at Seneca Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.